Welcome to Crosslink Community Church Podcast, where we prize Jesus, make disciples, and love people well. We are so glad you're here, and wherever you're listening from, we believe you will be more acquainted with the heartbeat of God through today's message. <laughs> so, uh, right before I was getting ready to come up here, I realized that I left my Bible in a different room, so thankful for children who... We'll go get your Bible for you. Ch- daughter. So my bad. My bad. Just got yelled at. Hey, uh, how you doing? Good. That's good. That's good. Hey, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Hebrews chapter 12. That's where we will be. Um, it has uh, been a good journey so far. I think so. Uh, for uh, me personally, we started in Hebrews chapter 11. We decided to continue on and do 12 and 13. Uh, the good news is we will wrap up, I believe, chapter 12 next week and then finish up chapter 13 in uh, October. Uh, and so with uh, with this particular text this morning, I, I know last week, if you were here, we uh, we dealt with a hard topic, a topic that I think is weighty uh, and difficult at times. Um, and what we read through in Hebrews chapter 12 is that there's a group of people in a particular time that were going through an immense amount of pain and suffering and persecution because of their faith and trust in Jesus. And and so while that was happening, the writer says, hey, listen, although they're going through, you're going through suffering and pain, you need to know um, that this is actually God's involvement, that it's his love, that his sovereignty and providence is allowing you and uh, to go through this moment to train you and teach you. And I know we used last week that we found in Hebrews chapter 12, this word called discipline, um, that we as, as well, Americans don't really like very much. Uh, it's something that we kind of shy away from. And so it was a, it was a difficult text, a weighty one. Um, and, and I wish I could say that this week's was going to be less weighty. In some ways it is. In some ways it is. But in others, here's what I found that this week, uh, this text is so applicable in moments um, that we, we ignore it. Because we think... Okay, I see that that applies, but in my context, it's different. This is what we do. So we justify why we can selectively listen to certain mandates and suggestions in scriptures because we think in my context or your context, it doesn't, it doesn't fit. Well, I'm here to tell you that um, the context uh, of this passage will speak directly to our context here this morning. Have you ever uh, enjoyed something that is really good? Like, you enjoyed it so much that it's kind of dangerous. Okay, so like food. I'll just throw it out there. Like, I like steak. Enjoy steak. It's pretty dangerous sometimes. If I go to Texas Day Brazil, I will leave there very uncomfortable um, because I will eat as much as I can. And I know, I know gluttony is a sin. I will confess later when that happens. But the reality is I love, I love to eat. Uh, and, and here's what I have realized, that there are things in our lives that are so good, so enjoyable, um, that what happens is it becomes dangerous to you and I. One of those things, and I wasn't sure if I was going to be able to use this this morning, so I stayed up until that last moment, so I made sure that people were going to be okay if I used it this morning. And the one thing that I believe is a good thing that people enjoy but can become incredibly dangerous is, well, it's college football. Uh, and so, so here's why. I'm, I'm last night, I'm last night, I'm sitting, I am sitting outside 
uh, in my backyard, enjoying my time, reading through some scriptures, going over what I'm going to be discussing here this morning. And I, I did, I turned the game on, uh, so I had that going, volume down, just going to glance over every once in a while, uh, until this moment happened where I have a neighbor, don't know which neighbor it is, um, and he's quite a few doors down from me, I know that much, would scream at the top of his lungs when something would happen. He would lose his mind, like undignified. And I'm thinking to myself, I can't even get men to raise their hands in worship. And this guy's dancing around, probably in his underwear, celebrating Ohio State. I'm like, this is crazy. I, the, the underwear was conjecture, just adding that. But either way. So, but here's the problem for me. I'm watching the game and clearly... My television, where I was watching on my, my tablet, was 20 seconds behind. And so it actually worked out in my favor. So I would be reading, doing my own thing, and then all of a sudden there would be this explosion behind me of celebration and a lot of profanity. And then I would know, oh, the next play's a good one. And so then I would watch. Sure enough, it was. It, listen, when it was down to the last Oh, you know, okay. Some of you are like, wow, I'm still hurting, right? Like some of you didn't sleep well last night because you're still thinking about this game. What I said before, that there are some things that are really good that become dangerous for us. It's the amount of intensity that we can put in some of these things. And this guy went all in. And I just, I just want sometimes for us to go all in with that energy and that intensity with our relationship with Jesus. So when I talk about there's things that are good that's sometimes dangerous, one of those things that we will highlight here this morning is God's beautiful and indescribable grace that he offers you and I. And the reason why I say it's so good, it's dangerous, is because his grace is so expansive, so massive, that what ends up happening is that people will dismiss the beauties and the realities of that grace or restrict it, which we'll talk about in a little bit, and confine it to try to control it. And so the very thing that's supposed to actually provide freedom for us to enjoy Jesus all the more actually starts to, to hinder and become dangerous. So we'll hopefully make sense of that in a little bit. But if you have your Bibles, let's read from Hebrews chapter 12 starting in verse, verse 12. Here's what it says. Therefore, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Verse 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know, afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent." though we saw it with tears. This is a fascinating collection of uh, verses. Um, 
And I, I'm, what I'm going to do is just take it kind of line by line as we work through this this morning. Because I think each one of these verses um, have some major implications for, for you and I. Uh, and so where we'll start is this first verse, verse 12. This is what it says. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. And 13, and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed. The, the author is now informing an audience that because they are not impervious to suffering... And because this suffering is actually God's love working out in their lives, training them and teaching them, they are to press forward. Like the suffering is not an excuse to stay limp on the ground. That the suffering is not an excuse to complain and rant on Facebook or on your stone tablets, whatever it would have been. That this moment, the suffering and persecution you are experiencing is, well, is not a reason to stay complaining. But to strengthen your weak knees and lift your drooping hands is what this author is telling them. To find strength in the reality that God is involved, he is faithful, and he is worthy to be trusted. To trust and believe that this, what they were going through, is both seasonal and temporal. And, and that the, they have reason to still lift their hands and strengthen their knees because their reward is eternal. Now, this is a beautiful verse, unless you're going through suffering. This is not what someone wants to hear. And so I find it interesting, as he completes the, this was the discipline of the Lord to allow you to endure these things. So here's your response. Here's what you do now that you have found that out. Lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees. To me, it kind of associates with, hey, uh, get up, stand up, and praise. Praise God that he is still involved. Praise God that he is still faithful. Praise God that he will not let you suffer beyond what you can handle through the grace and mercy of his son, Jesus. I, I love that the author says this. Um, but if, if you would, the author actually takes this directly from a passage in Isaiah. So, so if you turn there, just real quick, I, I think it's beneficial for us to read this this morning. In Isaiah chapter 35, we have this same phrasing that the author stole from. Not in a bad way, stole. Anyways, Isaiah 35 verse 1 says this, The wilderness... And the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. So what that implies is prior to whatever's about to happen is that the land is not glad. There is not rejoicing. There is not abundance. So it seems like there's a season of a desert and wilderness that eventually is going to turn into a season of glad, joyful re rejoicing, right? The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. And here's what it says. It's very rare that we have a train this morning. But because of my ADD proclivities, I will point it out to you. 
case you missed it. Okay, verse 3, it says, strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have been anxious, heart, be strong, fear not. Now, one of the things that I have noticed over the past four or five years is how ubiquitous anxiety has become. It has ravished so many people. Just, just the anxiousness of what today's going to bring, the I can't sit still because if I sit still, I'll start thinking about all these things, whether they're things I need to do, I was supposed to do, I shouldn't have done. And so anxiety has seemed, seemingly taken over the hearts and minds of so many people. And so in this text, I think the people were living in a season where it was barren, it was difficult, it seemed like there was nothing good happening. And Isaiah says, don't worry, there is a turn coming. There's something that's going to happen, and you will no longer be anxious. Fear not. Be strong. Uh, strengthen your arms and your knees and stand up and praise. And I think that maybe, maybe a way to combat anxiety is to strengthen your hands and your knees and praise God that he's still involved. Maybe, maybe one of the ways to battle anxiety is to know that even though we're uncertain of what's ahead, he is always and will always be certain. Nothing takes him by surprise. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. I want to continue on because I find it fascinating how it correlates. Then, and this is the prophecy of the Messiah, all right? So if you're familiar with Isaiah 35, this is what Jesus did when he arrived on the scene. The, uh, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. In the hunt of, or the hunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes and a highway shall be there. And now shall be called the way of holiness. Remember that, the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It will, shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon or up on it. They shall not be found there, and the redeemed shall walk there. But the redeemed shall walk there, and the ransom, and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing everlasting joy be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Um, what the author is talking about in this text, what he's preparing the people for, that was actually going to be, um, man, countless years later is that the reason why our, our knees are strengthened, our hands are raised, the reason why we should be strong and not fear is because Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is coming and he's going to heal what is broken. He's going to make straight the paths. He's going to fix what is crooked. He's going to deal with the heart of humanity and he's going to bring redemption to people that causes an everlasting rejoicing. Um, 
And so I wonder if the way Hebrews 12 starts out in verse 1 and in verse 3, which you can turn, turn back there, this concept of looking to Jesus and uh, considering Jesus, I wonder if what we just need to do a lot more than we do is strengthen our weak hands, drooping hands, and strengthen our weak knees and thank Jesus for what he is doing, um, even if it feels difficult. I think essentially what the writer is telling us in Hebrews is that we are to find our strength in what the Lord has done, what he is doing, for he is worthy to be praised as we walk in his righteousness, knowing that healing is possible. And we see this. He says here in uh, verse 13, make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. It seems like what God requires of you and I is just simply just move forward. Not, not just do it, try harder. Not you've got to figure this thing out on your own. No, he says, I have given you the strength, the grace, and my spirit, and my people to help you just take one more step forward. Like, I wonder if it's our response as humanity who believes in Jesus that we received an extraordinary gift, a gift we could never earn, and so we're no longer trying to earn that gift. We're just taking a step forward because we've already been given that gift. And it allows us to not revel in our own pain and our own situations, but to just move forward. Um. I think the author in the next few sentences will unpack for us what this kind of looks like, what it looks like to move forward, what it looks like to um, walk in these straight paths, what it looks like for you and I to move into what he has for us. Um, so let's read it. I think this is difficult, maybe. Verse 14 is what it says. Strive for peace. Strive for peace with everyone. And for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. <laughs> uh, Y'all don't find that hard? Okay, I just want to make sure I'm in. Like, I read this verse, and my first initial, I'm like, okay, no. God, I don't know if you know my situation, circumstance. I got a lot of crazy people around me. Uh, peace is not an option. In fact, I feel like all I live in is chaos. And so um, I find it ironic uh, that this verse is painfully and extraordinarily given to a current climate of turmoil and persecution. What do you find interesting? You, we already know what they're walking through. We've discussed it over and over again, pain and suffering. And so his response, the author's response is, hey, here's what you need to do. Strive for peace. With who? Everyone. No. Some? The ones I like? A few? The author is telling people who are facing ridicule, persecution, sufferings, and pain to strive for peace. And it seems like, it seems like an evidence of being a follower of Jesus is one who strives for peace. When I said that this is so applicable, it's difficult, 
is because we'll take a sentence like this, strive for peace with everyone, and then we'll debate with God who everyone is. And as long as they haven't hurt me, and as long as they're not against me, and as long as they don't deserve it, <laughs> my anger and wrath, then I'll strive with peace for it with everyone else. And we're selective in this. And it seems like the author is saying, no, you cannot have selectivity. It is simply strive for peace. Um, it is crazy to me because they are the ones enduring the harm, yet the author says they are not exempt from their role, their mandate to strive for peace. Even if pain and suffering are what you are receiving, your mandate, Scripture tells us our role, our job is to strive for peace. And it's very difficult now in the age of Twitter, Facebook, and all things social media. The amount of hate, the amount of anger, the amount of wrath that comes out of the mouths of those who believe in Jesus is astounding. Um, let, me, let me do it this way because I think it's important. It's important to know, all right? That striving for peace does not mean that you can't stand firm on conviction and truth. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean sacrifice conviction and truth for peace. Don't do that. In fact, as believers, we are to stand unashamedly, unabashed on the truth and convictions of the gospel. However, this can be done while striving for peace. It means that when we stand for truth, we still see people as people, not obstacles. It means that if I stand on this conviction, this truth, which is absolutely needed as believers, that when people come against that, don't agree with me or deny that very truth, I still see them as people, not an enemy or an obstacle, and I love them through it regardless. I strive for peace. I don't spew more anger and wrath. I just say, this is the truth of the gospel, and I hope one day you get to swim in the deepness of the grace of God. One day. Or drown in it. I'm just kidding. Just, <laughs> just kidding. I'm still work in progress. As followers of Jesus, we bring to the table calmness, not chaos. We should bring to the table peace, not strife. Just think for a moment of how much we don't see that anymore. Dissension, separation, gossip, tension, all of these things. Listen, I think it's important also that peace is not compromise, weakness, or tolerance. Peace is, this is the absolute truth we stand on. And if you are against this truth, or us, we will not be shaken, but we will still love you well. I don't know what that looks like because in every one of our situations it's different. 
some of you have family members that you've tried to make peace with and they're just insane. That's why I think it's important that we note that it's our mandate to strive for peace, not to make peace happen. See, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not in control of whether or not that person is going to respond in peace. I'm just, I'm just responsible on my end. It's, it's like marriage. Man, if you don't feel like your spouse is loving you well, that doesn't mean you can like, I'm not going to love you well then. It's not how this works. Like we're responsible for our own place and where we're at is striving, striving for peace. Um, I, that was the easy part. <laughs> the second part of this verse, I don't know if you saw it. I'm going to read it to you. It says, it says this. Let me find it again. Strive for peace with everyone and... So we can add strife for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Now, the question that I would want to ask as I'm reading through this is what holiness is this that I need so that I see the Lord? Because I, I, I want that. I want to make sure that I'm there. Um, and if we're not careful, it will sound like the work for a certain holiness that we work for a certain holiness that finally convinces God to be pleased with us. So if we're, if we're not careful, what ends up happening with this text is, okay, strive for peace, now strive for holiness. And the holiness you're striving for is a holiness that will eventually, if you do it right and well, will please God enough to look to you and say, you're welcome in. And that's not what's going on here because it's not congruent with the rest of scriptures. If you believe Jesus Christ, listen to me, this is vital, and I say this over and over again, but it's so important. You receive his righteousness. You are now holy and in right standing with God. This position only comes by way of a gift from God through Jesus. So the only reason why you and I are positionally holy is because of what Jesus has done on our behalf and our belief in that. So positionally, I'll give you titles, a saint, a child of God. Positionally, that was never earned. It was because you trusted in Jesus. In that moment, you become a child of God. What the author is saying is that for those of you who are positionally holy, strive for holiness in your practice. What's unfortunate, I'll, I'll just confess in my life, what's unfortunate is that so often my practice doesn't look like my position. Anyone? Now I'm thankful that my practice doesn't dictate my position, okay? So, so we, we land there. We got to make sure that that's the case. But our position should dictate our practice. So, so if, if God sees me as holy and as something I could not have earned, then shouldn't I strive for that? What does that look like? Well, it's not Ned Flanders. <laughs> Let that settle in for a moment. 
If you don't get that reference, you can Google it later. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, not, it's not the guy who comes in with the biggest Bible, with the Jesus shir- shirts, darn it, with the holier-than-thou attitude. That's, that's not it. That's not what we're looking. It's not someone who um, falls in line with what we have traditionally said. You can't drink, you can't cuss, you can't smoke, you can't see rated R movies unless it deals with Jesus. Like, like all, all of these, all these things that we have historically said, this is what you shouldn't do. This equates holiness if you avoid these things. That's not it. I hate to break it to you. So what is it? Hmm. I think it's so much more beautiful than that. I think we're going to see it in a moment. But what I think it is, is that when you have finally been hit by the semi-truck of God's unbelievable grace that provides with it a holiness that you could never have earned, you come out of that changed. And although you may have seasons of difficulty and of sin, and you find yourself back in certain vices that you were once out of, even though you navigate life and suffering and pain come your way, there's this, there's this thing, there's this Holy Spirit inside of you that's telling you, just, just move forward. Just, just move. Listen. I know you feel dirty. I know you feel ugly. I know you feel like you're unlovable, but you need to know that God's love is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ and the holiness that you've received is found in his finished work. So the love that God has for you is unchanging. He won't love you anymore. He won't love you any less. And so the motivation from that causes you, okay, because you still love me, I don't need to clean myself up to come to you, but you can clean me up. And so you run to your father to say, listen, I'm struggling, I'm hurting. Can you give me the strength to lift my hands and strengthen my knees to say thank you for what you have been doing in my life? I I think it is, I think it's looking to Jesus a lot more than everything else this world has to offer. I think the Bible says that this is what holiness looks like that we transform, that we're being transformed from one degree to the next to look more like Jesus. We don't need 2.0 versions of you. Okay? What we need are people who reflect the beauty and grace of Jesus. And that changes lives. And I think that's what the author is trying to get them to understand in this passage. Um, Let's continue. Verse 15. We'll split this in half. 15 says this. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. Um, Here's the first portion of this verse I'm going to deal with. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. Such an interesting verse. 
See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. We, we see some similar things in the book of Hebrews. See to it that no one fails to enter the rest that's provided through God in Jesus. We've seen this over and over again in Hebrews, if you've read through it. But in this particular context, here's what he says. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. I want to first point out the undertone of this text is community. I think we miss out on this. And what we want to deal with are all the kind of explicit places where it talks about church and community. But you get to a verse like this, and you can't do what this verse is asking you to do without community. See to it that no one fails. It didn't say see to it that you don't fail to obtain the grace of God. It says see to it that no one does, which implies togetherness. Because there's a chance that if there's not togetherness, that there's isolation, and that in isolation, there's an opportunity that you might miss the grace of God. So what does that mean? Um, we are encouraged here to press each other towards the grace of God. We are not to live this Christian walk in a vacuum. We need each other. Church is vitally important because it is the vehicle God chose for you and I to experience community at its deepest levels. This is what God designed, how he designed it. And, and here's why. Ready? Like, I feel like this part gets missed. Hopefully I can explain it. This means... That if you confess that you are in a season of sin that is ravaging your heart and mind, that what we do as community is encourage you towards the grace of God. I got a text this morning from a good friend. Um, I love this dude. He was a in our youth ministry in Florida, he was uh, became a youth pastor. Um, after that, uh, he lived in he lived he was kind of our adopted son for I don't know his last his senior year, uh, and he was he was apologizing now. He was like, "I'm sorry that you had to put up with me." I'm like, "Thank you for that." So well overdue. <laughs> and so, but we're we're texting um, this morning, and we're just talking about um, man, just how beautiful God is. And uh, I remember a conversation him and I had, uh, this was, man, years ago. We were talking about what, what will stir a revival in the community? Like what's gonna cause people to fall deeply, madly in love with Jesus? And, uh, and he was like, this is what it's gonna take, Jeremy. True confession. People finally confessing their deepest, darkest troubles, sins, and hurts. People finally coming together into a community saying, listen, this is how bad I really am. I want you to know that. And to have this kind of confessional moment, he's like, that will spark a revival unlike anything you have ever seen. And I said, you're right. I think you're absolutely right. Because the more we can confess those things and have a place to confess those things, what happens is they lose their grip on us. They start to bring themselves to the light. It's outed. And now we have more freedom. So I'm like, you're absolutely right. I was like, however... Before that even happens, what we need in churches today are people who actually know how to forgive. 
Because confession will only go as far in healing process as forgiveness allows. And if people are unwilling to forgive, then one, confession will cease to happen, and two, those who confess will be so beat up and wounded, they'll walk away from the grace of God. Because we are called to make sure no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So, so we take those who are broken and hurting, we don't, we don't shoot them. We, we pick them up and say, here, here is God's grace. Let it refresh your soul and heart and mind. This is, this is what we're called to do. But on top of that, this means that if you are in a great season right now, things are beautiful and amazing, going well, and life is a bunch of daisies, that we still encourage you to not trust in your bank accounts, bank accounts, your abilities, your goodness, all the things that you're doing, but that we still encourage you to the grace of God, knowing that you didn't arrive to this season alone. You see, community causes us to obtain and make sure that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. So, so we, we opened this morning with this concept that God's grace is so expansive, so massive, so great that it should consume us. Obtaining the grace of God is reveling in the grace of God. It is receiving the grace of God. It is trusting in the grace of God. And it is impossible to overplay, overuse, or overstate God's grace. We must make sure our lives our doctrine, our theology are saturated with the grace of God. And I will tell you, just in my experience, in churches across America, we've moved on from the grace of God to the try harder, do better, become your best person now theology. And it is dangerous. And it gives people false hope. The moment you think you can clean yourself up enough to stand in front of a holy God, you'll be greatly let down the day you do. It's dangerous. And please, he, he, he started this out with your holy strive for holiness. And so, so here's, we, we need to do this. Two things happen. Ready? I know you're ready. I can tell you're leaning forward. I can't see, but either way, two things tend to happen. When the grace of God is preached and declared, one, someone hears the, the magnificent grace of God and dismisses it and lives the way they want to live. So that happens. That happens. The second thing, number two, is that one hears about the magnificent, massive, expansive grace of God and they restrict it, put conditions around it. Therefore, I would contend that the remaining portion of this text this morning exposes what happens when God's grace is dismissed, not valued, or restricted, confined by conditions. 
Um, I don't know who said this quote. Uh, I'll claim it today. It's not mine. Um, but the abuse of something should not dictate the use of something. Okay? Uh, so, so what that means is that if you've seen something that was used and it was abused, that now you start to put conditions around the use of what it is that was abused, uh, that can't happen. J just because you, you see abuse in something doesn't dictate the use of it. You see arguments about this all, all, all the time. I mean, I'm not going to get political up here, but I'll say this is your argument for gun, gun rights, right? We can't allow the misuse and the abuse of something to dictate the use of it, right? <laughs> Careful. Uh, same, thing, same thing with alcohol. We can't, we can't take alcohol and the abuse of alcohol and allow that abuse or misuse of it to dictate the use of it, right? So, so you have this all the time. Here's what's happened with grace. We have thought that people have abused it, or we think people misuse it, so we start to change the use of it. We, we start to restrict it and listen. If God was ever to show up here in person, and at any moment, because of our regulations, policies, rules, and requirements, we have ever at any moment restricted the grace that he so freely gives, then I will be ashamed. I will not pull back the curtain on grace, and I will make sure that as we are here in this place, we make sure that no one ceases to obtain the grace of God. But... But what happens is that it gets dismissed or restricted. Do you, do you remember when I said earlier that we strive for peace? That's our calling. That's what we do. We can't control if someone else that we're trying to have peace with will respond that way. Same thing when you preach grace. I can't control how you're going to hear it and what it's going to do to you. It's just that my prayer that the Holy Spirit invades your space enough to let you know that now that you are holy, strive for it. That's what I pray for. Okay, uh, so I'm getting close to being done, I think. Verse 15b, all right, here's what it says. It says that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it, by it many become defiled. Uh, such an interesting right turn. See to it that no one obtains, fails to obtain the grace of God, that no one, no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled. I think bitterness is an incredibly dangerous, dangerous thing. Um, as bitterness sets in, it seems like it begins to take over the mind and the heart and the actions. You'll become overly critical. This will cause you to become more distant and more isolated. Now, I would say, give me a show of hands if you've ever had some bitterness, but I don't want you to get bitter for me asking you that question. So, so I won't. But I, okay, thank you for your, you know, A-type personalities. Um, I, I do think all of us in this room have experienced bitterness. Uh, once again, I don't remember who quoted this, and I could be making it up. But bitterness is like drinking poison while you wait for the other person to die. Anyone? That's what happens. It's destroying you while you're hoping it's destroying someone else. 
Um, bitterness is consuming. Bitterness will change everything. It'll change your intimate relationships. It will change your relationship with your kids. It will change your coworker relationships. It will begin to, you will become so critical of everything around you. People will start to pull back away from you. And then you get critical of the fact that no one's around you to help you. Bitterness works itself out in the church in some crazy ways. Anyone ever hear, I don't go to that church anymore because they're full of cliques. Or maybe they're the ones who, through their blood, sweat, and tears, invest and engage and serve that church more than anyone else. So it looks like they're on the inside. Bitterness does crazy things. Causes us to stereotype and to label and to separate and cause dissension. Listen, ready? If God's grace calls us to community, then it is bitterness that drives people away from community. You've seen it. And unfortunately, this bitterness brings others with you. This text says the bitterness that takes root in your life will cause trouble and potentially defile others. I would contend that another reason we need community is to help each other work out this bitterness that's in our lives. Because unfortunately, we tend to become blind to our own bitterness and justify why we are okay. It's just my personality. <laughs> okay. Mm. I believe that the two best examples of how damaging bitterness can be in Scripture are the Pharisees and Judas. Both who missed out on Jesus. It's dangerous. Listen, don't, don't play around with it. <laughs> If you, if you have been allowing bitterness to take root towards anyone, it'll keep you from striving for peace. It'll keep you from striving for holiness. And it'll keep you from going into the grace of God and bringing others with you. And what this text tells you and I is that that is a dangerous place to be because it seems like it unfolds from there. Because the last thing we're talking about as Sierra works her way up here is a guy in the Old Testament that I don't think any one of you and I want to be categorized with. I had a dog once. He was a long-haired dog. He was red hair, like red long hair, and he was sexually immoral. You ever have one of those dogs? Yep, had that guy. We named him Esau. We did, I loved Esau. <laughs> but we were like, uh, how'd you name him Esau? I'm like, he's red-haired and sexually immoral. Read the Bible, all right? This makes sense anyways. It's not in my notes. <laughs> Esau this is, this is the illustration we get you ready <sighs> verse 16 that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal for you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing he was rejected for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Um, these two verses give us a strong and ominous warning that life outside of community, outside of God's grace, filled with bitterness, can 
spiral out of control to sexual immorality, to unholiness, like Esau. And here's what's interesting to me. Um, if, you, if you read about Esau, especially this particular event, there's nothing in there overtly that says that he was sexually immoral or, or sets him apart different than some of the other characters in the Old Testament. And so I find it interesting that the author throws that in there. And so what a lot of commentaries do with this is that they say this concept of sexual immorality is actually underlining a spiritual uh, immorality that Esau had. Yeah. I think he could have used the word spiritual there. Either way, I think the operative word is more the immoral unholiness that plagued Esau's life. And you can put any other adjective on the front end. But here's what I know about this event. I don't know if you know it. Uh, Esau was a man who liked to hunt, go out in the field. Uh, Esau and Jacob, twin brothers, uh, Jacob was loved, it seemed like. Esau was hated by both. Uh, interesting scenario when you read it in both the Old Testament and New Testament examples. Seemed like Jacob was more a mama's boy and Esau was more of the daddy's son. Either way, as this event plays out, Esau comes back from, from hunting and he's famished. Anyone ever come home and you're like hungry? Like, where'd my food at? Hungry? You're like, like let, let's be honest. I, I mean, I, I can survey the room. None of us are starving. All right? Like, but we've said it, right? Like, oh, I'm so hungry. I'm going to die. No, you're not. You have plenty of time left. Drink water. <laughs> like, that's, but either way, Esau comes back from hunting and he's famished. So famished, he's like, I'm probably going to die. It's like, you're dramatic. So Jacob, man, slithery guy he was, said, hey, I got an idea. I'm making this soup. It's delicious. You smell it? Yeah, it smells great. Can I have some? Yeah, well, here, oh, hold on. Here's the deal. I'll give you a bowl of soup, one bowl of soup for your birthright. Now, for you and I, that may not mean too much, but in the context, it means a whole lot. And as I kind of equate it to the conclusion here, it will mean a whole lot. Because the reality is Esau is going to take a spiritual blessing and trade it in for a temporal bowl of soup. So he's like, birthright, what's that to me right now? You can have it, Jacob. I don't know about you, I have brothers. If I would have done this, I would have easily later on said, I never said that. I played that. Apparently got written down in scriptures, so you can't pull that card. Either way, he traded his birthright for a bull suit. And the author's telling you and I, telling you and I, that that is a grave warning. Here's why. If, if we don't strive for peace with everyone, if we, if we don't strive for holiness in practice, not in position, in practice, if we don't live in community to press people towards the grace of God, then what ends up happening 
is we get devoured by the things this world has to offer us and we begin to trade in the temporal for the eternal. We begin to negotiate with pieces of our heart and our mind. We begin to negotiate with pieces of our soul. We begin to say, this won't harm me that much. And we start to trade the inheritance that we have, the blessings that we have, the spiritual realities that we have through Jesus Christ. We begin to trade those for the things our stomach desires right here and right now. And you wonder why the church is withering away in America? It's because we are trading for bowls of soup. I'll give you a quote. It's crazy because C.S. Lewis figured this out a long time ago. This is what he said. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. So, here's my conclusion. What are you trading? What matters to you so much that you continually trade? It could be as simple as this. You know that moment when the Holy Spirit says no and you say yes? And then you wonder why the Holy Spirit's voice, voice gets more faint? What are you saying no or yes to that the Holy Spirit says no? Please, please say no. It, it may not seem like it's affecting you now, but it's, it's causing you to wither up and die. What are we trading that's eternal for what is temporal? If you close your eyes, I'm going to pray. Um, during this time, and we have people who come to my left and my right who are willing to pray with you and for you. Um, they'll be up here in a moment. We just, we just want a place for you to be able to respond. Maybe for some of you, it's just to sit and reflect. Maybe for some of you, it's to bow and pray and for some maybe it's just to listen but we allow this response time for you to kind of meditate on what it is that God is doing in this moment right now Sierra's going to sing a song during this time at any moment if you need prayer please get prayer if you need a conversation there's people here please please do not leave here failing to obtain the grace of God. Father, we love you. Thank you. There's no one like you. Give us the strength and the endurance needed to pick up our drooping hands and to strengthen our feeble knees. If anything, just bring us back to a place of worship considering your son Jesus, reflecting, gazing upon his beauty, looking at him so much that we begin to change from one degree of glory to the next. Forgive us in this room for our failures and our sins and our 
things that we run back to. Have your way in this moment. We love you. Thank you for listening to Crosslink Community Church Podcast. If you would like more information about our church, please visit our website at www.crosslinkchurch.com or join us in person on Sunday mornings at 1020 a.m. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss a single message and share with a friend. Thank you again for listening.